Some of you might know that I was a pastor in Toronto for a number of years, 10 years, and uh, we were right downtown in Kensington Market. And I don't know if you know about Kensington Market. It's a very interesting place. It's fun and hip. It's also got a kind of a, a spiritual vibe to it that can be quite dark at times. And so we, I remember the time I had an intern come in, and he was uh, going to be our missional intern. And so his job was to help us engage the neighborhood. And he really got excited about what was going on in Kensington. And they were having a parade there at Solstice, Winter Solstice. And so he said, like, let's go to the, to the Kensington Solstice Parade. And I remember myself and my uh, associate pastor time, and, and he, he, we all went to this parade. And we started walking down the streets. And, and you can see there's the, these wonderful-looking designs. There was lots of little kids there. And so when I got there, at first I was a little trepidatious. And I got there, I was like, oh, this is pretty cool. And we're going on the parade, and we're walking with these kids. And, and then we come around the corner, and eventually we get to this place, and it's a big, giant bonfire. And I remember looking uh, at this fire, and just all the people are around it, and people are all excited. And as we're standing there, and, and I start listening to what they're talking about, and I start hearing the people speaking, and they're, they're invoking gods. First thing I hear is, Something about Thor. And I, I thought first I thought this is Marvel comic type of thing or something. And then they're talking about Frege. And they started going into all these uh, pagan gods from different cultures. And they're invoking them. And I'm sitting there. You can imagine myself as a pastor going, whoa. Like this, this is serious. These, these, and, I, and I realized like this is serious neo-paganism. They are worshiping these gods. They're calling them. You could hear talk about how polytheism was more realistic than monotheism, there's, there's, and, I, and I remember just being there, and my heart going like, well, like we are living in a time where paganism isn't just a, a theory, it's, a, it's, there's actual people proclaiming paganism. And it made me really think about why. Why would someone who is born in a culture that has such exposure to Christianity, a history of Christianity, why would paganism be embraced? As the more I thought about it, the more you kind of study it, you realize that one of the number one things that people talk about Christianity, when they talk about Christianity, like if they reject Christianity, the number one thing they'll cite is Christians. That they have met Christians, they know Christians, or they think they know Christians, maybe from their televisions or whatever. But when they think of Christian, they think hypocrite. Or they think judgmental, someone who is looking down on me, Someone who doesn't care, someone who's forcing their own belief system on me. Either that, or the opposite thing is, they maybe don't even know that people are Christians. That Christians kind of are exactly the, exactly the same as everyone else. So what's the difference? What difference would it make in my life? When you start to think about that, you start to recognize, as we're, we're going through our series, we're talking about sharing God's story, uh, or this is my story, and we've talked about kind of identifying our story and realizing that we need to recognize where God has showed up in our life, how God saved us. Then we've been also talking about this idea of actually sharing our story. And now I want to talk about living our story. What does it look like if we actually live our faith in this world? 1 Peter 2.12 says, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. See, we can see that often Christianity is kind of in between this, this idea of being judgmental or being kind of just immoral as, every, as the rest of the world. But we're actually called to live in the tension 
We're, we're actually wa- we're asked to, to walk that tightrope that's being held by this tension between these two poles. To live in this world, but differently than it. How do you do that? Well, notice the terms, live such good lives. You want to show Jesus? Live such good lives. Callous anastrophe. This idea of, of living a, a good life. The, the word actually uh, can be translated as a conversation, anastrophe. It's like a, if you think of a, a, a strophe in a poem, it's like back and forth between them. The idea here is, is, is uh, as you go and as you come, the back and forth of life, your daily conduct. And that daily conduct, the way you live your life, your manner of life, your behavior, your deportment, is supposed to be, it says good, kalos. The word isn't just necessarily just good. It's actually like beautiful. You should live a beautiful life. Someone should look at your life and go, beautiful. Bellissimo, as my coworkers used to say. Like they, should, they should see something in your life that is beautiful. They should see beautiful behavior, commendable conduct, a magnificent manner of life, admirable actions, Excellent execution of existence. That's what they should be seeing when they, when, they, when they look at you. Hope that inspires you. Does that inspire you to, to think of a life which you could look upon and go, that is beautiful. That, when we, just, we just prayed for Julia, and, and, and when I came here from the, from the very beginning, I remember gathering, uh, even before I was a pastor here, for prayer for Julia, and just hearing your story and reading her blog. And as I'm looking at her, her story, I'm like, this is a beautiful life. These are beautiful words. This makes me, just when I, when I, when I read what she's saying, I, Jesus is shining on this in a way that people who, who don't love Jesus or maybe really question Christianity, they can't question Julia. And that's what God's asking of us, to live a life that is beautiful. Do you know people like that in your, in your life? Can you think of a few people who you look at that and you're just like, someone could just look back on your life, imagine if they could look back at your life and go, now that was beautiful. They say it's a, it's a beautiful life. Ask, is, is yours? Now, everything around us in life isn't beautiful, is it? You can look around and, and there is darkness. There, there is ugliness around us. And that's why it says here, it says, to, as we live these beautiful lives uh, among the pagans. Now, this word pagan is kind of a ugh, scary word, isn't it? It's, it's a very Christianese word. It comes from the word paganos, which is actually Latin, and there's a couple of different meanings. The first meaning that it came with was this idea of, of being within a certain perimeter or, or boundary. And then eventually it came to mean people who kind of lived in the, in the hillside. And so the Romans started calling, using the word pagan. It's kind of a, a derivative of, uh, or a diminutive, kind of like, ooh, those yokels, you know, those, those uh, unlearned, those rustic bumpkins. It's kind of like, in many ways, the way people use the word uh, to, to describe uh, maybe rednecks or, you know what I'm saying? It's like this, this idea of like people who are in the, 
the country unlearned. And so the word pagan started to mean that in Roman culture. It's very interesting that this word then becomes the word that gets put onto the, the, the people who aren't part of Christianity. Some ways you might think this is actually uh, cultural imperialism of like Christian, oh, those are the, the pagans. They're not in the, in the city, right? It actually comes from the, uh, the, the original use of it amongst Christians, though, wasn't that, it wasn't that. The actual original use was the idea that there's a, there, there's a city of God and there's a, there's a city of the pagans. And the city of the pagans is, is the world. There's a, a parameter around them and they each have their own kind of city. That's what Augustine calls it. And then later on, the word pagan starts becoming more and more of this pejorative sense, attaching it to that. Well, it's actually trying to, 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 to notice someone who is living by kind of the standards of the, the culture of the world. The word in the Greek isn't pagan, by the way. The word in, in the Greek is ethnos, which is interesting because it's actually nations. The word in the Greek is live amongst the nations. Or often in, in the New Testament, ethnos will be translated Gentiles. Live amongst the Gentiles. The problem is Peter's talking to a bunch of Gentiles. So he's talking about living amongst the Gentiles. They, they themselves are Gentiles. What's the interesting idea here? But what he's saying is you're in, you're in and amongst the ethnos, but I want you to live a beautiful life amongst them. I want you to live a life where you shine in a, in a new way. You might be in them. You might actually have that same name, ethnos, Gentile, but you need to live in a way that is beautiful. See, no one actually self-identifies as a pagan until the 19th century. Isn't that interesting? This neo-paganism rise came out of artistic kind of reaction against Christianity because of the judgmentalism and the, all, all the, all the non-beautiful ways in which Christians were living end up having some people embrace the term pagan. And so one of the calls that we realize as Christians is if we want to live a beautiful life amongst the Gentiles, amongst the nations, is to, to, to recognize that we have to actually live lives that people look at and, and want to be like. Rather than speak down at, it's live in and amongst, with. Even in our language, it's very interesting, in our translations. I wonder sometimes if I, if I want to use that word there. Peter isn't saying, hey, come out from amongst the nations, leave them, be apart from them. In fact, he's saying the exact opposite. In, in the verse before, he, he says that you are strangers and aliens in the world. You're not actually part of it. You're, you're living as a stranger in the world. You have desires warring against your soul. But as Christians, you need to live a life that shines amongst the ugliness. That's like, I, the world, there is ugliness in the world, Right? I don't know about you, I don't want my kids to watch the news anymore. Like, usually the, the, the elections in the U.S. Is, should be like the paragons of virtue, right? Now I'm like, I don't want you to know who either of these people are. <laughs> and what they did. If you think about what's, what's happening in our life, you start to realize, like, we're living in a climate where human lust is being catered to in every single way. You can't run away from it. You can't get away from it. You're, you're in it. You walk in it. I just challenge you, go to the mall this week and walk in the mall and just see all the ways in which the, your, your, what says worldly desires, your sinful desires are just being played upon. You're going to see things that are trying to invoke your lust. 
you are definitely going to see things that try to invoke your greed or your pride. Even like hatred. I would say like self-hatred because you don't have things, right? Things that are going to try to evoke your gluttony. Try to, try to cater to your own sloth. Just entertain yourself into a coma. That's what the world is attacking, bombarding you with these messages. And so we, we're amongst the nations. We are Gentiles in the, amongst the Gentiles. And we're supposed to shine like lights in the dark. Now, I want you to notice that Peter's a realist. He knows, doesn't mean they're going to like it. Right? If you live a Christian life, it doesn't mean they're going to, oh, they're going to, they're going to necessarily like it. They'll, they'll, they might see the beauty, but it doesn't mean they're going to necessarily embrace it happily. Though they accuse you of doing wrong. Peter knows that as you live this lifestyle, that accusations will come. Don't, don't expect a free ride in the darkness. It's not as if you're going to get universal applause for living this beautiful life in Jesus. We we should stop expecting that. Peter saw this. He said, uh, and and if you look through his letter, you start to see the ways in which he knows accusations are coming against them. One of the accusations they have is that they're undermining the government. Christians are being accused of undermining the government. They're being accused of being rebellious. Uh, Wives against their husbands, uh, Slaves against their masters. There's this kind of idea here. They're being called uh, that they're disrupting trade and, and, and divination. They're not participating in the festivals. They're holding antisocial values. They're, they're atheists. They're often called, you know, Christians were called atheists because we didn't have idols. Now, here's a couple of readings. I want to just give you some some quotes from the ancient pagans at this time and how they would actually uh, speak about Christianity. They called them, Tactius called us a class hated for abominations, a deadly superstition, hideous and shameful. These are ancient learned writers. Suetonius said that Christians were a class of men given to new and wicked superstitions. Pliny said that we were perverse and extravagant superstition. Fronto accuses of cannibalism, even incest, which we'll learn in a little bit, is actually one of the things that Christians stood apart from not taking, taking part of. And then finally, there's a guy named Galen, who, who was more learned, and he, he, he posed Christianity. He, he thought they were unintelligent. Christians were unintelligent. But the one thing he would say is, but you know what? They live virtuous lives. And I thought that was really interesting. He's actually reading exactly what we're hearing here. He, he couldn't say that their, their lives... We got to know them for real, that they were not virtuous. If you read again the, the beginning of the verse before this one, dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which warn against your soul. So one of the things that early Christians were called upon to do was to live a different ethic. And this is in different ways. They, they had to, their ethics had to be different. They had to live a different lifestyle than what was lived around them. And one of these things was the, the sexual ethic. A very interesting observation. When you start to look through some of the things that uh, the early Christians and others were talking about, they would say to their, to their uh, countrymen, like, we don't live this way. We share our tables, but, but not our partners. And other people thought that was kind of weird. 
There's a, there's a really interesting one by Minicus Felix, and he starts talking about how, uh, how they act. And I just wanted us to think about this for a second. I'm going to read it to us a little bit more. Among the Persians, a promiscuous association between sons and mothers is allowed. Marriages with sisters are legitimate amongst the Egyptians in Athens. Your records and your tragedies, which both read and hear with pleasure, glory and incest. Thus also you worship incestuous gods who have intercourse with mothers and daughters and sisters. With reason, therefore, this is frequently detected amongst you and continually permitted. Miserable men, without even knowing it, you rush into what is unlawful. You scatter your lust promiscuously since you beget everywhere children and then you frequently expose even those who were born in other homes. What he's trying to get at is when you start living in a culture where people are just kind of open this way, it's dangerous because now these men are having lots of children with lots of people they don't even know they're having them. And then, 20 years later, they don't even realize they might be connected to someone that's actually of their own DNA. Isn't that a crazy thought when you think about this? The Christians actually had to enter into a culture and live a different ethic purposefully in which they were attacked for it and called names for it. And yet, where we are today is starting to, in some ways, seem to return to some of those things. But what I'll say to you is if you stand up for these type of ethics, if you recognize, hey, you know what? Two become one flesh. Young people, I'm going to say to you, hold on to that traditional idea that sex is for a married couple. Because this is, this is countercultural. This is actually something that holds us together and will be part of what shines the light. How about our integrity? If you're, if you're in your workplace, and I've seen this before, I've seen Christians kind of get chided for not going along with some of the, you know, you just take some things here. Or everyone does it. I've even seen like kind of foremans not uh, kind of upset that there's Christians who are trying to make sure they didn't, you know, take a few things off the top. And they're like, well, you think you're better than us? I've seen these type of things happen. How are you living your, your, your ethic out with integrity and honesty? Another, th- another important ways in which the Christians stood out amongst the early nations was their love for social justice. This is actually something that was, uh, was seen. There's an emperor, Julian, who was his, his parents, his, his line, he was part of the first line of Christian emperors in Rome. And in fact, he, he turns on them, and he's often called Julian, Julian the Apostate because he turns against his Christian upbringing and becomes, becomes a pagan again. And when he does, he's, he's starting to get really upset with the Christians. He calls them impious Galileans. He says that we entice children. We're kind of like people who entice children with cake and keep getting further and further away, and then we sell them into slavery, he says. How do we do that? By taking care of the poor. Let me read a little note he wrote, which I think is really interesting as he comments upon us. Why, he's writing to a, a pagan priest. Why do we not observe that it is their benevolence to strangers, their care for the graves of the dead, and the pretended holiness of their lives that have done most to increase atheism, which is Christianity? I believe that we ought really and truly to practice every one of those virtues, for it is disgraceful that when the impious Galileans support not only their own poor, but ours as well, all men see that our people lack aid from us. What he's complaining about is he can't get his priests to take care of the least. 
And so he's trying to encourage it. His efforts didn't really avail to anything, largely because the reason that the Christians are being propelled to do this is their, their ethic of making sure that they're clothing Jesus, that they're feeding Jesus. So one of the ways in which we stand out as Christians is our social justice. Another thing is our prayer and dependence upon God. I just want to say to you, if you live a life where people actively know that you are turning to God in your dark times, you stand out. You tell a different story. You actually show your story to be one where you truly depend upon God. Or the fruit of the Spirit, right? Gentleness and self-control, peace and kindness and faithfulness, all these things. So, how do I live my story? How do I live a beautiful life? What does living for Jesus look like? We need to become godly, intriguing, socially adventurous, joyous presence in the lives of others. The kind of life where people look at it and go like, mm, why? Remember we talked about this last week? Questionable lives. Why? Are you like that? Why do you do that? So I just to suggest a few things. I'm, I'm taking some of this from Michael Frost. He has a book called Bells, and uh, I think it was really helpful. Um, but I'm going to kind of expand a little bit. One of the things we have to do, definitely as Christians, is continue to work with the marginalized. I mean, Paul is really helping us as a church continue to keep that focus. Next door, just Christmas is coming up. These type of things where you recognize, as we work with those in our society who are marginalized, People recognize that's of God. I just want to throw this out there to you as well. One of the best ways I've seen of helping share Jesus with someone deliberately is instead of uh, just kind of, you know, preaching at them, it's actually it's something going on where I know I'm going to go help maybe with next door or something. Bringing along a friend. Hey, we're going to go help with this barbecue in this, in this neighborhood. Do you want to come help? Because people know that helping others helps them feel like they're fulfilling something deep inside them. If we invite them to join us as we do that, and they come, they start realizing, oh, like, why did you guys set up this next door space? What, what is propelling you to do this? It's such a, a way to open up the questions that come, right? And then you can start to share. Remember, be, be ready with the answers. If we help invite others into that, they end up being attracted to Christ through that. Another way we can do this is, is by blessing. I, I would love it if Christians were known as a people of blessing, not cursing. Right now we seem to have a reputation, people think we're cursing all the time. Oh, not swearing, obviously. But always calling things out and, you know, damning actions and those sort of things. What if we were people who were known for, like, blessing other people? People in your work who maybe have, need a hand or something, like, you know what, I'll show up and I'll, I'm going to help you. What? If you, if you see needs and, and, and fulfill those needs, just because you know that this is who Christ is, he, he's, he's a God of grace. Imagine if we were people who were just characterized by blessing. Maybe it's just words of affirmation. We live in a culture of quite cynical attitudes. We live in a culture, actually, where Best friends just call each other names all day. 
And we kind of go, oh, that's kind of, that's our friendship. And it's, it's kind of like, yeah, but I bet you if you bless them, if you talk to them and spoke a true appreciation into their life, if we were people who did that regularly, with the people around us at work, I said, you know what, I really appreciate this about you. You would stand out. People would be like, what? It's not cynical all the time. It's not negative all the time. It stands out. Another thing I'd say is just acts of kindness. Finding ways to, to step in there and bless people. Let me ask the Lord to show those things to you. Another way we can do this is I, I truly believe eating together. And I know that we had this as part of the Magi mission. I think it's genius and I think it's important. The idea that we will purposely invite people into our homes and eat a meal with them and welcome them. That's what Jesus did all the time. That was his main mission strategy. Go into their house, have a nice glass of wine, a good meal, and a great conversation. That is the very best mission strategy. Regular people sitting down with regular people, just sharing their hearts and lives, and then they can get to know you, and then they can ask the questions. And it's not in a way that's like forced or set up, or it's just it's a, it's a, it's a way to live life. So I'm just asking you, like, who are you going to invite over this month? Another thing is, is praying. If you want to live a, a life uh, that people see and go, oh, that's a beautiful life, be a person of prayer and people know that you're a prayer. I'd encourage you, actually, when someone's going through a hard time, you can say to them, like, you got to be polite about it, right? Because you don't want to force things on people. It's like, hey, can I pray for you? Usually they'll be like, yeah, thank you. Sometimes they're like, yeah, if it makes you feel better. I appreciate that you think that. Like, you know what I mean? They can recognize it at least as an act of kindness. Then maybe if they say yes to it, I mean, can I, can I do something bold here? Can you say, hey, can I pray for you right now? And see how that works out. And if they say, yeah, they might be like, yeah. That's still yeah. <laughs> be careful and gentle and loving and, and don't pontificate and go on about how they need Jesus and everything in your prayer, right? So you pray for them and say, Lord, could you address this need? They're, they're one of your children, one of your great creations. I know you love them. And, and pray a blessing over them. Make it nice and quick and lovely and beautiful. And you have just shared Jesus more than you could have with like 10 theological treaties. Just encouraging us to, to, to live this way. Now, I know you're probably thinking like, okay, I've been a Christian a long time. A lot of you are thinking that. I know most of this stuff. It's good to have a reminder. I just want to throw this question out there. Why don't we do this? Like, seriously, I mean, why do you think this is so easy to know and so hard to do? What's some of the reasons that we don't? Pardon? Fear of rejection. I think that's a huge one. It's that sense in which if we speak up, this person will pull away. I think it's true. We are such busy people, isn't it? 
And that's good because we're told not to be idle and slothful, but we can also work ourselves into something awful, right? That's a good, I think that's really important. I, I wonder if in, in that, uh, if we start to look at our lives, maybe we, where, where can I build these things into my life? Rather than like adding, it's kind of like at work. I, that's good. Anything else you might think that causes us to, to pull back on these things? Saying the wrong thing. Yeah, the idea that you're going to do more damage. Yeah. And it happens, right? And so you realize, like, if I take this risk, I'm hoping that most people recognize if you're doing it out of a real true heart. That, but it, it's a scary thing. I know what you're saying. You don't want to push people further away. Yeah. I, it's, I have that all the time with people being like, the humble Christians, oh, Christians, oh, uh, Cyril, you're not like the normal Christians. And I'm thinking, like, I don't know if that's an insult or a good thing. I don't know if I'm, but then I started thinking about it. I'm like, I, I wonder how many people they actually know, like how much of that's a caricature. And then maybe they met one or two that were that stereotype, right? But we definitely don't want to be that stereotype. That's great. Anything else you can see that sometimes holds us back? Ah. I think that's a real one. I, I, I can imagine, I can think of two things right off the bat that make us feel inadequate. One of us is like, I don't have enough skills, I'm not smart enough, this person's really brilliant, this person's really good, or they seem better than me, like almost, right, that kind of thing. You ever met those people who are like such good people that you think they should already be Christians? Yeah. I've seen two of them in my life, and two of them came to Jesus afterwards. I'm like, not surprised, because you were kind of living that beforehand. It's cool that they connected it. So one of them is like inadequate in my abilities. The other one might be sin. If we're serious, right? We, we know, they know our sins, don't they? Our friends? They, if they really know you, they know those weak spots in you. And I, I, what I'd say is there is, again, like, I think that's one of those places where they know your weaknesses, but they know you're genuine. They know you're not that judgmental Christian. And so if you speak and you're like, you know, I'm not perfect. They're like, yeah, I know that. <laughs> but here's what gets me going. And they're, they're just looking for authentic, true spirituality. So I would just encourage us to, as we look through these things, we can't let these obstacles sink us. We have to tell God's story, not just with our words, but like living these lives, these beautiful lives. We have to show God with our lives. We have to tell our stories despite all the pressures and the niceties that we want to have in life, let's commit to some of these missional habits. Let's try to think through some of these things. Because God loves telling stories. And he loves it when we tell stories. And he especially loves it when we live out the story of Jesus in our own lives. And if we do, we start to live these things out. We live these beautiful lives. They will be such beautiful, beautiful lives that others will see it and they will be compelled to investigate Jesus. So we just talked about a few reasons why we might not be doing these things. I, you have some cards there. I, I just want to take two, three minutes, and I, I'd ask us to, you know, bow our heads. Let's just take a few minutes. Don't write down your name or anything. Write down a place where maybe God is calling you to take a bolder step. Maybe it's in one of these missional habits. Maybe it's I want to invite someone over for a meal. Maybe it's I want to pray for someone. Is there a way in which that you feel like God is saying to you right now, like, I need to bless someone in this way? And, and just take a few minutes in silence and let the Spirit speak to our hearts. And, and let's write it down. 
And as we come for communion today, we're going to ask you to put them in the bowls as, as an offering.